Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Kion, what are you doing? I'm getting rid of all my Democratic memorabilia. I'm quitting the party, Greg. Goodbye, Gary Hart campaign button. Goodbye, Bill Bradley for President bumper sticker. Goodbye, big poster of the young, cute 1988 Al Gore. You know what? Maybe I'll keep that one for sexual purposes. What's causing this? I woke up. That's what. I was standing in line at IHOP, and I had this epiphany. International House of Pancakes. Yes, international. Don't you see? New world order. One world government. Belgian waffles. Look on the back of a $1 bill. What do you find? Uh, the Great Seal of the United States. No, Greg, it's a pancake. With a pyramid made of bacon and an eyeball made of boysenberry syrup. Uh, so what are you going to do? Become a Republican and support the only candidate who's brave enough to speak against IHOP. Rand Paul. Greg, he's an eye doctor. There's an eyeball on my money. Eye doctor. Eye. You get it? Uh, he, uh, he dropped out of the race today. They got to him. Greg, Liberty's dead. Kneel before your stateless pancake overlords. So what will you do? Uh, become a libertarian. I think I was one all along. Besides, their nominating convention is in Orlando, so I get to double down on Goofy. I'm going to book my plane tickets. You listen to this show on Party Switchers. And now his fleeting affair with Nelson Rockefeller changed him forever. Colin McEnroe. And I want to emphasize it was a fleeting affair. But I did get to find out why his wife was called Happy Rockefeller, if you know what I mean. Um, all right. So today we're going to talk about why people switch their uh, political orientations. And, and some of these switches are going to be really wholesale switches of political orientation as opposed to party. Uh, some of the people depicted in our guest uh, Daniel Oppenheimer's book, Exit Right, are people who were way to the left and then moved way to the right. Um, and were, But we also thought, well, so this is a book called Exit Right. It's about people who do. The subtitle is The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century by Joining the Right. But we thought, well, that's, you know, I mean, we'd like to talk to somebody else who kind of went the other way. Uh, one name that popped right into my mind is uh, somebody whose work I've admired a lot over the years, Michael Lind, a co-founder of the New America Foundation, author of several books, including Land of Promise, An Economic History of the United States, and perhaps most pertinently, Up From Conservatism, Why the Right is Wrong for America. So we've got uh, the traffic moving in both directions here. Uh, and if you have things that you want to say to us about why you might have switched political orientations at some point, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266. Even better, tweet at us at WNPR Colin. Daniel Oppenheimer, um, we're going to begin uh, with you, uh, I should say, Director of Communications for the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, and you've got like a, a book signing event, too. We should plug that before I forget, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and thanks for having me, Colin. Uh, tonight in South Hadley at the Odyssey Bookshop at 7 o'clock, I will be reading and signing and being uh, in profound ways, I think. Right. You'll be. Uh, he will be in South Hadley. That's Massachusetts. It's up by... Uh, the five college area. So uh, go up there and see him, but hear him now. And so let's just begin with this. Um, 
I'm going to have both of you talk about this a little bit, but I guess I'm curious to know, first of all, Daniel, you could have written a book that had Michael Lind and David Brock and Hillary Clinton in it, too, people who maybe went left to right. Uh, I mean, went, yeah, no, right to left. It went right to left. I gotta, I'm going to struggle to get the directions right. Who went right to left? I mean, Hillary Clinton was a Goldwater girl uh, in 64. She's running for president as a Democrat now. So you, you could have covered both sides. Was there a reason that the left to right direction was the one that you were the most interested in? So, yeah, and I, I'd say there are two reasons. Um, one of them, and I'd be interested to hear Michael's take on this, is I think the left-right phenomenon has been more significant politically. And the people who are the sort of – the people I write about and then other people who've gone from the left to right I think have played a bigger role in the, particularly in the, the intellectual history uh, in America in the 20th century. So that's one reason. The other one is a very personal one, which is I grew up on the left. And though I remain on the left – uh, a lot of my own intellectual, political, emotional process and struggle has been with the orthodoxies of the left, with what I see as its flaws, with some of the people on the left, sometimes with my parents. Uh, and so that's the sort of struggle that's that's personally deeply interesting to me. And, and in, in a way, this book, though there's no me in it, there's no, there's no first person, there's nothing about my story. In a way, it's my working through of some of my – issues with the left and thinking about why people went further than I have and actually left. Yeah. Your brother would have put a lot more of himself in it. Uh, <laughs> but um, he, he warned me that <laughs> he warned me there might be some missiles coming his way. All right. So uh, Mark Oppenheimer is Daniel's brother. He's on the show all the time. So Michael Lynn, let's talk about that for a second, too. And, and maybe a place to start is to talk about your conversion. And uh, maybe that's the wrong word. But um, uh, but your conversion, my recollection of your conversion, uh, reading about it uh, at the time, was that it actually even involved maybe some of the neocon figures who people uh, Daniel's book. Um, I mean, explain how you went from the right to at least sort of the left of center side. Well, I think you have to distinguish people who stayed in one place and then the borders moved and mm. they found themselves in a different country uh, from those who actually did undergo a deep philosophical conversion and defected from their homeland and moved to an, another country. In my case, uh, I've pretty much uh, stayed where my views coalesced in youth. I'm a Kennedy, Johnson, Humphrey, you know, 60s liberal. In the 70s and 80s, this made me a neoconservative, as the term was defined at the time. In the 90s, this made me a centrist, and today it makes me somewhat left of center. So I really haven't moved at all that much in my views. Uh, but the political landscape keeps shifting around. Now, in their other cases, including some uh, in the book, which I look forward to reading, like Whitaker Chambers, where there's a true conversion. So in other words, it's not simply a matter of shifting party coalitions where uh, somebody with the same uh, uh, philosophical views ends up in one rather than another a decade later. Uh, but it, it's a real kind of personal spiritual transformation, but that was not my case. Well, I'm going to come back to that, Michael, in just a second. I'm going to uh, press you on that a little bit. But um, but before I do, um, Daniel, a lot of the people in your book would say some version of what Michael's saying right now. I mean, Reagan famously said, I didn't leave the party, the party left me. Um, that, that, that a lot of people who switch think they didn't change very much. Right. And I would, I would say just my back of the book calculation, I'm not implicating you in this, Michael, but I w is that is that 90 percent of that is bogus. I mean, that 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 is certainly that wasn't true of Reagan. Um, maybe Christopher Hitchens sort of of the people I wrote about 
would say that as well. But I, I think most of the time that's not true, and I think it's reflective of the fact that it's actually very hard to um, admit that you've changed. In some ways, it's 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 easier to say that the whole country has changed or the party has changed than it is to admit that you believe things that are different from what you used to believe because these, you know, our political beliefs are deeply bound up in who we are and our sense of ourselves. Uh, I'm not saying it's it's never true, and I utterly believe, Michael, um, that that was ca- true in his case. But certainly if you're thinking about somebody like Ronald Reagan, it just wasn't true. I mean, he moved to the right, but he didn't want to admit that he had moved to the right as much as he had. Well, no, yeah. I agree entirely about Reagan uh, since he went from being a four-time voter for Franklin Roosevelt to, you know, 15 years later denouncing Social Security and the TVA. So that was a genuine conversion. Uh, it also was uh, you had genuine conversion on the part of some of my former neoconservative mentors like uh, Irving Kristol and uh, uh, Norman uh, Potteritz, who wrote an essay in the mid-'90s, you know, basically saying neoconservatism is dead, we're just conservatives. Well, you know, Norman Potteritz gets a whole chapter in Daniel's book, and I'll, I'll throw it back to Daniel in a second. But my sense f- for you, Michael, was that people like – that you felt as though people like Potteritz kind of a – hijacked the party and then instead of steering it down the center kind of caved a bit to the Buchanan factions and and, and some of the other you know considerably more right-leaning groups uh, but that in some ways this is a story of people what you saw changing in the party that pushed you uh, it, maybe it didn't push you in a different direction but pushed you to think of yourself and your place on the spectrum in a different way is a story of some of the of people including some of the people in Daniel's book. Well, I think that's right. Uh, if you look more recently, the migration has been from the relative right to the relative left. I, I was one of the early ones, but among my former conservative or neoconservative colleagues, Francis Fukuyama, Bruce Bartlett, Bruce Bauer, Andrew Sullivan, David from Fareed Zakaria, David Brock, uh, uh, Fareed Zakaria, and I met at uh, Bill Buckley's house in Stanford, Connecticut in the mid-'80s. Uh, so that was a party, right? I, that was a crazy party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and so in that case, uh, you know, my own perception is I, I don't want to uh, uh, get too deeply into the personal, but uh, all the way up until the early 1990s, there was a distinct neoconservative movement uh, where they were still insisting, a number of the older ones, that they were really just paleoliberals. You know, this term neoconservative had been thrown at them by Michael Harrington. Uh, and, you know, that was when I joined that movement. And then the people who led the movement basically liquidated the movement. And and they said that, well, no, you know, we're not paleoliberals after all. We're kind of mainstream conventional right-wing Republicans. And one can speculate about their uh, motives uh, for doing so. But, but essentially, uh, they simply joined uh, the mainstream conservative movement uh, by the middle of the 1990s. And, and I think it's a pity because... Uh, I think the neoconservatives had were much more in tune with the modern post-New Deal, post-civil rights era than the uh, much more reactionary right that they they uh, uh, moved into. So, um, Daniel, um, let's tell a story. Maybe you can give us like the 90-second version of the Whitaker Chamber story. We can talk about okay. how, how one of these transformations happens. So Whitaker Chambers uh, became a communist and a Communist Party member in the 1920s. Um, he was relatively well-known within that world for writing some communist-inspired fiction when he was tapped by the communist underground to be a spy. Um, and so he was a spy throughout most of the 1930s. Uh, and at the very end of the 1930s, he, he broke with the party. Um, he, had a, he had an actual religious conversion. Um, he, was praying, he was praying one day. He was beaten down by the whole 
life of being a spy in all sorts of ways and had begun to sort of read about all the problems with communism in the Soviet Union, and he had a genuine sort of spiritual conversion, left the party, um, for a while was kind of unaffiliated, wrote at Time magazine, uh, became a noted anti-communist, and then was one of the founding editors of National Review when William F. Buckley started that. So that's a 90-second version. Well, I'll give give you another 30 seconds. I mean, some of this, (laughs) you know, had to do... I mean, it seems to me Whitaker Chamber's story is one one of identity, too, you know? And there's... I mean, the the other part of that identity was being a closeted gay man. Yeah, and 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 the other part of that identity, and I don't think he would deny this, and I don't think it, this is a reason to dismiss his politics, is he was a kind of deeply troubled, tormented soul, um, had a kind of profoundly unhappy childhood. His father was a closeted gay man or closeted bisexual. They had a really dysfunctional family, and from the time he was very young— um, he had a kind of apocalyptic personality, and, and um, his brother committed suicide. It had a profound effect on him, and he, he felt a calling to redeem the world in some fashion. And initially, Marxism and communism were the vehicles through which he wanted to do that. And then when that fell apart, um, he sort of reconstituted himself as a, as a Christian, anti-communist, conservative, ultimately. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, it is deeply embedded in, in identity and pain and... Uh, sometimes pathology, though I think we have to be careful about throwing that around. So, um, you know, w- w- one thing that happens a lot in uh, Daniel Oppenheimer's book, Exit Right, is that people move from the far left, a lot of them are red diaper babies or something pretty close to that, to uh, a pretty far right, certainly in the case of somebody like David Horowitz, uh, and we'll come to him in just a second. But, uh, Michael Lind, I-, I know that you don't necessarily stop there in terms of p- sort of talking about worldview, right? I mean, there's left, there's right. There's a lot in between. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit uh, about that, about how all of us ultimately have to kind of identify or gravitate, or we do anyway, identify or gravitate to some kind of worldview. Well, because we only we, we don't have a multi-party system in the United States, uh, unlike most democracies, we tend to think everything is Democratic or Republican, which becomes synonymous with left and right. But obviously the left, you know, has Marxists. It has neoliberal New Democrats. It, it has moderate, old-fashioned labor liberals uh, who really have different worldviews. And the same is true on the right. The libertarians have next to nothing to do with the uh, religious right except for uh, common uh, enemies uh, in the federal government. So uh, I think if the consistent worldviews are not so much conservatism and liberalism or progressivism. They're smaller than that. Uh, so there's populism of the Donald Trump, Patrick Buchanan kind. Really, it's just a, it's a separate worldview of its own. Uh, it's called on the right uh, and, and happens to be there because of uh, the Republican alliance. But uh, uh, in, if it were if this were Europe, there would be a separate populist party and a separate libertarian or classical liberal party. And, and we wouldn't discuss these different groups in the same breath. Um, you know, one of the questions that uh, are is probably hard to answer, uh, Daniel Oppenheimer, is sort of what I think of. Actually, I'm stealing this from Jules Pfeiffer, uh, the Batman-Superman question. So with um, with Superman, Superman is the reality, and, and Clark Kent is the disguise. With Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne is the reality. Batman is the disguise. And as you look at the six protagonists of your book, one of the questions you could ask is, which was the disguise and which was the reality? In other words, um, with some of these people, uh, it might be argued that they pre- the pretense or the thing that they talk themselves into were their leftist leanings, and they— 
ultimately like a river seeking its own bed got back to what they really absolutely were at bedrock. Uh, and for others, it might be a different kind of thing where ultimately the right was the costume that they put on when they decided to be a different kind of superhero. I don't know. You want to react to that a little bit? Yeah, and I think I, you know, that's an interesting way of framing it and, it, and it makes sense in the context of different people. So, for instance, I always felt when I was reading about Ronald Reagan, who was a you know, solid Roosevelt New Deal liberal for about half his life, that temperamentally there was something in him that, that sought out conservatism. And, and one of the interesting things I came across when I was reading about him is that people were approaching him about running for office as a Republican years before he, haven't, he ever gave any inkling that his policies aligned with that or that he was interested in all, at all in that identity. I think temperamentally he was conservative. Um, you know, Chambers, again, there's different different kind of political vehicles in it that can be uh, – allow somebody to express a kind of characterological disposition. So I think he had a religious kind of personality. Uh, people have accused Marxism or communism of being a kind of faith – um, but I think he fit into the the Christian form of faith better than he did the Marxist one. Um, absolutely, somebody like like David Horowitz. Uh, I don't think David Horowitz would ever have become a conservative if there hadn't been this very particular traumatic event in his life that f- that sort of exploded his whole left wing identity and forced him to find a new one. Yeah, and that was the the murder of somebody working for the Black Panthers, somebody that he had basically recommended to right. go work for the Black Panthers, uh, and he felt a, a tremendous culpability about that. And I want to come back to that, and I want to come back to David Horowitz, who I I feel like might be kind of a I mean all the all six people in your book are kind of outliers and different from each other in yeah, different absolutely. ways. Uh, they're, they're not cut from the same um, bolt of cloth. But Michael Lind, you know, I don't know, maybe I overemphasize this. This is I've been thinking a lot about this over the last year or so, but it seems to me. That, you know, if I mean, not everybody has a really well worked out coherent political philosophy that they can explain that they can sort of. In fact, I'm not even sure Hillary Clinton does. But um, that, you know, they can just sort of say, here's what I believe. I believe this, this, this and this. But what they do do is gravitate towards people who look like them. If they feel like ducks, they stand around with other ducks. They don't stand with swans. And and I'm wondering for you, I mean, obviously you just rattle off a bunch of names of people that you could go out and have cheeseburgers with who were kind of with you as nominal conservatives at one point and are still with you nominal, nominally at the center or maybe a, a trickle left of, of center. But you know, what about milieu in general? When I say milieu, I'm talking about really boring, quotidian things like the way people dress, the way people talk, the music they like, the, the what, what's in your glass of alcohol when you drink. It seems to me that one of the difficulties of switching, of moving, is leaving a group of people who are familiar to you in other ways. No, that's exactly right. And unless you're willing to uh, lose friends, uh, you don't want to break you know, with uh, that, that milieu. And I think particularly... In the case of the uh, neoconservatives more than of the Reagan Chambers generation, because a lot of the older ones tended to be kind of maverick intellectuals or loners. But a lot of the neoconservatives, they were this very tightly knit social group from the time they were young Trotskyists or whatever to, you know, 50s liberals and 80s neoconservatives. And and I think it was very important for them uh, to be part of this lifelong circle of friends. And then when a sufficient uh, number had moved from the Democrats to the Republicans, uh, then, you know, very few of them uh, had had the uh, psychological independence uh, to stand up to that and just, to, you know, uh, to sunder their relationships. You know, we're getting a tweet from Red Menace uh, tweeting, it's unlikely that I could trade my political beliefs for the opposite. Extremely unlikely. But Daniel... 
kind of the point of your book is most of these people were not weekend warriors at what they were. They 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 were people who would have regarded it as very. I mean, David Horowitz was not a casual leftist. He was about as deep dyed a, a leftist as you could be. Um, that's right, and I think that the people I'm writing about are outliers, and particularly in that sense, they're people who lived politics, you know, in sort of profound, deep, thoroughgoing ways. I think it was harder for them. So I'm not sure if this is disagreeing with Red Menace, but it was actually harder for them than it would be for most of us to change political beliefs because it was deeply embedded in their identity, and it was also, as Michael was talking about, often, you know, even the ones who were loners in some ways, you know. Um, it was of the community they were a part of, um, and so it was, it was. It was. It was difficult. It was often traumatic, you know. And um, I think one of the things, you know, when you look at somebody like Donald Trump and, and the ability of so many of his voters to ignore the fact that he's been a Democrat two or three times, he's been a Republican two or three times, he's held policy, policies all over the map. That's actually an indication of, of how much easier it is, I think, for for maybe the average not hyper-political person to to switch or be kind of fluid in terms of their attachments than it is for the type of people that, that I was writing about. Although for Horowitz, and here I do have to say this, okay, so for Hor- you and your, your Horowitz chapter with him casting his first Reagan vote in, yeah. in 84, I think. Um, but the truth is David Horowitz has gone on to be kind of, well, in my, in my <laughs> way of thinking, just bat poop crazy, <laughs> you know? And I mean, he really has become, it, whatever he was as a leftist, he's, he's become more of a rightist than that. And he really is the kind of guy who's, you know, first of all, he set up a foundation with his name on it, which is also always a bad sign. Uh, and it's like the David Horowitz Freedom <laughs> Foundation or something. And, and you know, he's like the kind of guy who calls Barack Obama a neo-communist traitor. I mean, that would be a very typical average day of the week. That's not Daniel, That's not David when he gets out of bet on the wrong side. That's an average day that John Kerry and Barack Obama are neo-communist traitors, which to me is an absurd statement. I mean, Barack Obama like, has very heavy ties to Wall Street. He's, I mean, by no stretch of the imagination is this a defensible st- statement. And, and so that I look at Horowitz and I think, well, he's just a guy who's going to be very extreme about whatever he's going to be. I think that's right. But I think if you, you know, back to that question you had about sort of what's the disguise and what's the reality he is somebody – he has gotten very extreme. He was relatively extreme on the left, but I would say had a lot more years of relative sanity and normalcy on the left um, than he has on the right um, for sort of a, a, a complicated series of reasons. But but, but among them, this, this friend of his you mentioned, he was murdered. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he's been out there maybe on his own to an extent that some of the people I, I write about were not. Um, so even somebody like, you know, Norman Potteritz and Irving Kristol, um, these neoconservatives, there was a community of relatively sort of complicated, um, often sane people who they remained a part of even even when they went over to the right who probably tethered them somewhat more than than is the case for Horowitz. And, you know, we have to take a break here pretty soon, but Michael Lynn, so one way of looking at this is people are what they are. And maybe in the next segment we'll talk about how people get to be the way they are, how both of you get to be the way that you are. Um, and, and, and then something happens. Something happens. Capital S, capital H, Joseph Heller, something happens. And so, you know, so one very simplistic argument, which is the only kind I, I am capable of making, is that, that, that liberal Jews 
ultimately switched because they felt they had to choose between Israel uh, and their liberalism, that somehow or other that, you know, was a precipitating shaping event for neocons, and and that comparably maybe um, Dixiecrats um, moved to become Republicans because they weren't comfortable with the civil rights movement. So you've got Strom Thurmond and and all the other Stromites uh, kind of moving in that direction. And so what really happens is that something happens. There's a precipitating event. Things changes change whether it's a, a, a war in the Middle East or the civil rights movement in the U.S. and people think, ah, I got to move. Uh, 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 maybe partisanship and ideology aren't the same thing, but there's so- something I've got to do right now because I can't do the old thing anymore. Well, I, I disagree to the extent that I think that uh, the emphasis on temperament and particularly apocalyptic temperament is more important than any particular triggering events, which which may be important in, in an individual's life and career. In my experience, just thinking back, the uh, neoconservatives who had been moderate Roosevelt Democrats uh, pretty much did not go over to the far right. People like Nathan Glazer, you know, Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan became just a kind of center-right or, or even centrist uh, liberal Democratic senator in the 1990s from New York. Uh, after having been a neoconservative, whereas the ones who came from communist backgrounds or had been communists or Trotskyists, uh, like James Burnham and uh, David Horowitz, they were more likely to become extreme conservatives. And I think the continuity was they despised liberalism. They despised it from the left, and then they despised it from the right. And they viewed liberalism as something not so much dangerous as weak and pathetic and incapable of uh, any kind of uh, heroic achievement. So I, I would put more emphasis on the moderates versus the apocalyptic revolutionaries. Hmm. All right. We have to pause there. Uh, this is an interesting conversation. We'll come back for more of it after this. Now listen up, people party. They say parties are fun. What kind of party? There are many parties. You pick one. Now listen here, people party. They say party means dance. What kind of dance? You gotta get in your political stance. Some people are Democrats, others are Republicans. Some people have other parties. Are you a part of one? Some people are Democrats, others are Republicans. All right, we're back. We're talking about the people who shift their political philosophies or their political allegiances. Uh, Daniel Oppenheimer's book, Exit Right, uh, is about the people who left the left and reshaped the American century. Uh, these are, uh, it's actually six people, uh, Whitaker Chambers, James Burnham, Ronald Reagan, Norman uh, Potteritz, uh, David Horowitz, and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, and then joining us also from uh, NPR DC studios, Michael Lynn, co-founder of the New America Foundation and the author of many books, including Land of Promise and Economic History of the United States, and most relevantly up from conservatism, uh, why the right is wrong for America. So Michael Lind is often cited as somebody who moved in the other direction, although he would say that the the landscape shifted. Uh, He stayed in the same place uh, and the landscape moved around. You know, it might be interesting just to sort of talk about, okay, so to whatever extent any of us does have a political philosophy, where does it come from? So, uh, Daniel, I'm going to start with you. I mean, uh, this is something that you're interrogating your six protagonists uh, about. Uh, I mean, apostrophically, anyway, they're not actually there for you to interrogate. But, um, but um, so, where do you think your political ideas come from? So, um, I did some research on this in terms of like how predictive our parents' politics are of ours recently, and and it depends on how political a household you come from. But one of the things that uh, I found was if you come from a political household, it's actually very predictive. So, if you look at me, I was born. Uh, in Massachusetts to left-wing 
Jewish parents. Um, every community that I've been a part of, every city that I've lived in has been a pretty deep blue place. The odds, frankly, that I was going to be a conservative were incredibly slim. Um, so there's that piece of it in terms of just the broad political coordinates. And then I think there's just there's the temperamental stuff, um, which is I'm, I'm temperamentally uh, predisposed to looking for the gray, to looking for nuance, to uh, kind of trying to dissolve dichotomies that I think are too simplistic. And that kind of explains some something about what kind of left winger I am, which is the kind who writes a book about why people leave the left. And probably if I, you know, could be the exact same person, but have been raised in a conservative household, maybe I would be the conservative who's always annoying his friends because he's questioning conservative orthodoxies. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you, Michael? Where does I mean, I, I just want to say that everything you just said is fascinating. And we've done a lot of other shows with people like Drew Weston and George Lakoff and people like that about where, you know, where, in fact, these ideas come from, uh, how they, how tied they may be to either our environment or our neurology or our Myers-Briggs type <laughs> or whatever. But, Michael, where do you feel as though your ideas come from? Well, I think my values come from my uh, family and my community. I'm a fifth generation native of Austin, Texas, uh, in Central Texas. My hometown was by the always way. now. Uh, now <laughs> it's my hometown, Austin. Now well. it is. Well, yep. well, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, keep Austin weird. Right. It's uh, too late. But, but anyway, but, you know, from the time that Austin voted against secession uh, during the the Civil War uh, to the present, uh, Central Texas was more progressive. In the great formative battle in the generation before my own was that of uh, the young LBJ and the supporters of Franklin Roosevelt against the neo-Confederate Dixiecrats. Uh, and so uh, so I'm rooted in that somewhat provincial political culture. It's a quite different uh, political culture from that of the Northeastern intellectuals, you know, including some of my mentors like Irving Kristol and, and uh, others. Uh, in terms of temperament, I'm just naturally ornery. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when people tell me I have to agree to some party line, I'm inclined to push back on it. Uh, but no, go, ahead. go ahead. No, you finish your thought. Uh, now, I, I think you get your values from somewhere. But on the other hand, I do think, you know, if, if you're an intellectual or a scholar or, or you know, thoughtful uh, a political participant, uh, you then look for uh, it's not simply reinforcing what you already believe, but sometimes testing it. And if you're intelligent, you change your mind. If, if you know, the family community values don't really seem to uh, uh, fit the world. And in my case, uh, there was a great crisis in the 1980s when essentially the New Deal tradition was not represented any longer. You had the new left of the 60s was very strong. And then you had the neoconservatives who were sort of refugees from the New Deal and the so-called uh, old right or movement conservatives uh, led by William F. Buckley Jr. And I, th- I think, you know, th- that's something else. When, when you're in your 20s and 30s, there are certain options that are available to you, mm-hmm. certain schools of thought. And, you know, even if you, you come from a background with uh, uh, different values and traditions, if you're going to be politically involved, you sort of have to choose one of the two or three or four schools. Right. That are, that are extant when you're in college or, you know, early adulthood. Right. It seems to me that we have sort of two two ways in. There may be more. And it's, I mean, certainly the old saw about, you know, the person who uh, isn't a liberal in his youth uh, has no heart and isn't a conservative isn't a, in a, as he becomes older has no brain. I don't think that's true at all. But I, what I do think is true that you kind of have two choices. One of them is you inherit stuff from your parents, your family, your milieu, and then you probably don't waver all that much. I mean, that's sort of one. And then the other one is kind of heuristics, right? You, you, maybe you inherit something and then 
That may be the first time I've ever said heuristics no, on public word. radio. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually, <laughs> there'll be a ceremony again. afterwards. It's like a bar mitzvah. I get, to, <laughs> I get prizes for saying heuristics on NPR. But um, the, you know, heuristics is kind of testing, right? Testing the waters, kind of looking around saying, well, does this make sense? Does this? Wait, uh, for me, I think that's been much more the case. My parents were Goldwater uh, Republicans, um, and I think they kind of expected that I would be too. And, you know, I mean, it's you start testing things and saying, well, that doesn't seem true. or that. And when I was a, I started out as a reporter here in Connecticut in the late 70s, where the Republicans were by far a much more honorable group of people because they had no power whatsoever. So all they could do was stick up for ideas ideals and ethics, you know, and, and point out how completely power mad and unethical the Democrats were. And they weren't wrong about that. So it was easy for me to carry a little bit of this mild Republican light forward. And then I just started running into other things that heuristically didn't work for me. And, and I, I <laughs> registered Democrat. I just took some kind of test and I was a 99 percent uh, <laughs> identification with Bernie Sanders. Uh, so, you know, my mother is turning over in her grave somewhere. But um, so but that Daniel seems to me to be a lot of it but then maybe and Michael's used the word temperament I think maybe you have too then you have a guy like Christopher Hitchens who is somebody that Michael knew uh, quite well so you'll both be able to talk a little bit about him but for Hitchens I feel that temperament is almost first he's a polemicist first and in the ways that Michael was talking about at the end of the last segment you know I mean I guess to use the perfect Christopher Hitchens analogy he doesn't want any water in his bourbon. He wants to take it straight. So if he's going to be uh, on the left, he's going to be uh, hardcore, no water, no ice on the left. If he's going to go to the right, uh, maybe he's going to do the same thing. And he's going to do so polemically in each case. I, I think you're absolutely right about the, the heuristics. I'm going to do I get an award too. Uh, <laughs> in the, and, and I think the trick and what's so – and one of the things that I explore a lot in the book and what's so complicated for all of us – is what does it mean to sort of hold healthy political beliefs and be open to experience while acknowledging how much we're the creatures of our circumstance and our history and the values we were given by our parents and and just recognizing the, the just utterly brute fact that if we had been born in a different time and place, our, our politics would have profoundly different content. I don't even think you can argue with that. Um, Hitchens was interesting. So you're absolutely right about his sort of polemical um, temperament. One of the things that, would, that was interesting about him was – he tried so hard to sort of evade all the pitfalls of history and the ways that people can be mislaid by context and affiliation and loyalty, and and it failed him in the end. I mean, I, I remember there was just this, this really sort of poignant moment when he was he was, and I'm not sure how much he was trying to figure out where to be on Iraq, but I almost feel like the clincher was. Um, his great hero, Vaclav Havel, one of the great sort of moral figures of the 20th century, came out for the Iraq War. And for Hitchens, it was like it gave him this permission to be for this because he had this incredibly sophisticated, he thought, algorithm for how to arrive at the correct belief and a- avoid all the pitfalls. And even that failed him. Um, and and he kind of wasn't able to process that ultimately, I think, in part because of the temperament that you're talking about. If you read uh, Daniel's uh, book for no other reason, read it for the Saul Billow uh, dinner party <laughs> anecdote. anecdote. It's, it's so great. It's just a great uh, Hitchens story. So, Michael Lind, you, you did know uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, well enough to uh, sit down with him uh, over the dinner and or drinks uh, and talk some things out. And so here's this guy who goes from really being, you know, I mean, uh, good old-fashioned Marxist uh, to a supporter of the policies of George W. Bush. How do you see that particular journey? Well, I think of all of the uh, 
individuals in uh, Daniel's book, which I look forward to reading. I'm not sure of uh, Christopher Hitchens belongs. Uh, I think to his dying day, well, he, he told me this late in life, uh, when we were still on good terms, that he still considered himself a Trotskyist. And, and I think to his dying day, <laughs> he believed that he was being a consistent Trotskyist. Uh, he, you know, his big campaign, other than uh, uh, George Bush's foreign policy, was this militant anti-clericalism, you know, militant atheism. He he never, to my knowledge, signed up with uh, free market economics, you know, the other defining characteristic of the right. And I think in his, I think it was mad, but I, I think in his own uh, view, uh, the United States, in a kind of Hegelian way, the cunning of history, by destroying these clerical fascist regimes in uh, the Middle East was promoting some kind of democratic Trotskyist even socialist revolution. Uh, you know, I, I think it was crazy, but I, I think it was kind of consistent. And in that sense, I would distinguish Christopher Hitchens from James Burnham, whom he most closely resembles. Uh, because Burnham, who is also in the book, I understand, mm-hmm. uh, was one of Trotsky's deputies in the United States. Right. But he, he broke completely with uh, any kind of Marxism. Uh, uh, and had no sympathy towards Trotskyism later on and, and became a very reactionary conservative. I'm just not – now, if, if Hitchens had lived longer, he, he might have done so, but I'm just not sure that he broke with the left on anything other than foreign policy. Well, I think there's also – I mean, I, I do think Hitchens – I mean, in some ways, all of these uh, uh, protagonists are different from one another, but I, I, I think Hitchens is really interesting that way. But Daniel – I mean, the other thing is Hitchens was kind of famously – oppositional and he enjoyed kicking balls more than he cared what shape the ball was so that even when he's at um, the nation uh, for 20 years he's got a column called Minority Report which is kind of a dip off right away that I'm going to say things that probably will discomfort the core readers of uh, of this left leaning magazine. I'm going to think of ways in which some of their shibboleths um, are, are easily discardable. Yeah, and, and and just to, to get personal on it, I, I think in a way you're right, Michael, that he's a little bit of an odd man out. Of, Reagan is in a different way in the book. Um, the irony is in a sense the book is formed around him um, because when I started reading Christopher Hitchens when I was in college and started reading Minority Report, um, his – it was profoundly liberating and exciting for me, and it was precisely what you were just talking about, Colin, his, his, his sense of freedom to just – you know, I describe him in the book as kind of like the Waldorf and Statler of the left sort of mm-hmm. sitting up in the balcony lobbing insults. That was profoundly exciting to me and liberating, and, and, the, and, and when he started moving away from the left, though never to the right in a sense, and really cutting sort of familial ties in a very dramatic way, um, that was difficult for me. And, and, and part of the sort of the germ of this book is me sort of wrestling what that meant to me for someone who was a real hero of mine. So um, so I, it's true that he remained that kind of malcontent and dissident. I think what what is also true is he in, ve- in very decisive ways turned on the left in a way that was different from what, what he had done before. He severed ties with the nation. He started insulting people whom he'd previously been admirers of in ways that he just never would have before. So, you know, it's complicated. He never became a conservative, but I think he left the left in a pretty decisive way. And then I go back to Michael's point about hating liberals or liberalism. Yeah, and I was so glad you made that point, by the way, Michael. I have, there wasn't, it's not in the book explicitly, but, but, but it's something that I've thought about a lot. A lot of these guys on the left and the right, they just have a sort of profound contempt for liberals, uh, which unites them and is part of the reason why they couldn't do what so many 
other people did, which was move from the hard left to the center left or a kind of soft social democratic left. That wasn't an option for these people because that was precisely the space that they had a, had such contempt for. We're going to take a strionic yeah. element to it. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, grab, let's, let's, grab, let's grab a quick break. We'll come back and we can, uh, we can come back to that thought. Uh, but I'm just watching the clock here. We'll come back. We'll take a break. We'll I'll be back after this. What he means is let's practice green and play. Sure, Ted Cruz says he's a natural-born citizen, but if he gets elected, watch what happens at IHOP. Canadian bacon, you heard it here first. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who switched from brushing to flossing, and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Benjamin Esty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Wendell Wilkie. For show pages, articles, and proof that now and here switch to here and now, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the influence of basketball on Obama and vice versa. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, I do feel like there's almost a little bit of an arc from today's show to tomorrow's show. We'll be talking to Alexander Wolf uh, from Sports Illustrated who wrote The Audacity of Hoop, which is about uh, the uh, love that President Obama has for the game of basketball, the way that it may have actually shaped his governing style, his campaigning style, and the way in which he may have had an impact on basketball and its status in this country. And joining us for that conversation will be Jamal Wilkes, uh, formerly of the Lakers in UCLA, and Brandon Sherrod, who plays basketball for Yale and took a year off to become a whiff and poof, uh, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which uh, he'll just be known for that for the rest of his life. Although you'll find out something on the show about Brandon Sherrod politically tomorrow that will interest you. Anyway, that's tomorrow. We're talking, talking about today right now, and we're talking uh, to two people who are very interested in how people's political beliefs shape uh, uh, are shaped and how they evolve. Michael Lind is co-founder of the New America Foundation, author of many books, including most relevantly Up From Conservatism, Why the Right is Wrong for America. Daniel Oppenheimer's new book uh, is called Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century. Tonight in beautiful South Hadley at the Odyssey Bookstore, uh, he will be, what time are you going to be there? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. So you can go there and and he actually will, like he could probably just convert you or something or he would, <laughs> you could just say I'd like to switch from such and such and he'll just He'll lay his hands on your shoulders. And, and I'll bring the holy water, yeah. Right, exactly. He'll sprinkle some water on you, and you can, you can change. All right, uh, our time uh, is, um, is pressed a little bit here, and I would like to talk a little bit about the contemporary scene. There are a lot of people around right now who uh, have done things kind of like this, although I think our guests would argue not really like this. And Michael Lind, maybe I'll start with um, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, now, some people probably simply change parties not because they've changed political philosophy, but maybe they think the field is too crowded over in one party. Or, I mean, what do you make of a of a, a perso- persona like Michael Bloomberg switching parties? Well, I think uh, for Bloomberg, uh, you have to look at him in his his context, which is the very wealthy uh, elites in both parties tend to share a worldview. Increasingly, uh, they tend to be uh, in favor of globalization, uh, large scale immigration. They tend to be socially liberal. At the same time, they're fiscally conservative. Uh, and they want to cut Social Security and Medicare and so on, arguably to keep taxes from going up on people in their income group, in my opinion. Uh, so, but, you know, that's kind of, there's a corporate boardroom 
worldview where the wealthy Democratic donors and the Republican donors actually have more in common with each other than they do with most of the voters in their own parties. And I think Bloomberg's centrism, I would be very surprised if it would find many voters if he ran for president. I think uh, essentially it's it's very much a, a kind of an elite subculture. Um, and Daniel, I mean, we, we keep coming back to this idea, uh, but I think it's probably worth saying that when you, uh, you know, you wouldn't think maybe there would be a lot that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton would have in common, but but maybe they do have in common the reality that they they don't really have a taste for that unfiltered whatever it is that that they're they they react pretty situationally. I mean, as I said earlier in the show, Hillary Clinton did grow up with a strongly Republican father. In '64, she was a Goldwater girl. She was in Wellesley. She said she was. Uh, I think she said she was a, a liberal at heart and a conservative at brain. Um, now, of course, she's uh, she's emphatically a, a Democrat. But you know, and I think you said you know Trump has sort of jumped back and forth a bunch of times. That that there are people who who they kind of read the way the water's breaking at any given moment as opposed to only being able to drink out of one tap. Yeah, I think that's right, although I think that they're, ev- they're sort of examples of that in very different ways. So so Trump actually has had a certain consistency of 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 worldview in the sense that if you, know, you go back as far as he's on the public record, he's always talking about winning. Um, he's always been nativist in one way or another, though it's not always the Mexicans and the Muslims. It might be the Japanese or Chinese, depending on the context. Um, he's always been a great celebrator of uh, business acumen and common sense and deal making as the highest virtues, not just of business life, but of political life and I think life in general. So that's been a consistency. The, poli- the policies that he attaches to those kind of shift you know, depending, I think, what as you're saying, on the political context, but also maybe sometimes what, what he read, you know, yesterday and also which uh, leaders of which party are being nice to him at a given moment. Um, whereas Hillary, you know, it's interesting, you know, she suffers for this. I mean, since, you know, she became, she moved to the left, she's had a pretty good consistency of of core political views, but she seems so... Um, sort of situational in all these other ways. And it, and it's it's interesting that it's Trump who can excite people with this sort of core of outview, but core of, of worldview, but incredible promiscuity of policy. And it's Hillary who's always disappointing people with a kind of consistent policies, but a, but a kind of fluidity of, 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 of um, I don't know, how she expresses that and and where she arrives precisely in terms of where she's going to come down on on a partic- at a particular moment. Um, uh, Michael and I have a question for you, but did you want, just want to react to that instead? Or? <laughs> uh, no, yeah, go ahead and ask your question. Well, I guess my question for you is like what we see right now, and it's sort of back to your point about how within within dichotomized um, ideological divisions between right and left, there are these kind of subgroups. And so you have a Trump, you have a Cruz, you have a Rubio, you have a Bush. They're all going after more or less conservative voters right now in order to secure a Republican nomination. You have Sanders, you have Clinton also going after nominally liberal voters to secure a Democratic nomination. But with, you know, widely, often pretty widely disparate messages. So what do we make of that in terms of the conversation we're having right now? Well, I, th- I think, uh, as I suggested earlier, you have a two-party, five-ideology or six-worldview system. 
So there are at least two worldviews within the Democratic Party. There's the so-called neoliberals like uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, who are more moderate uh, on on economic issues, you know, uh, socially liberal. And then there's your classic progressive social democrats like Bernie Sanders. So then on the right, you have classic uh, populists like uh, Donald Trump. You have uh, very socially liberal libertarians who are the opposite extreme. Uh, and then you have uh, the so-called movement conservatives who try to navigate between these two groups. And so I think most people, they're not right and left or geographic directions, but it, it doesn't, you, you need additional instructions on the map. Uh, so once you are in right or left-wing territory, then you have to decide, are we in, in, on the left in social democratic land or in neoliberal land? Right. So uh, we're just about out of time, Daniel uh, Oppenheimer. But um, so often as we as people navigate that process, people may identify as a certain thing. They may say I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative or they may go into a little bit more micro with some of the different worldviews that Michael's talking about. But then ultimately, are are they just trying to map that onto a particular candidate or I, I feel as though the way that we react to candidates goes further than that? I think. Yeah. And I think that's right. I, I think. um Michael's typology was very astute, um, but then it's like the, the the more micro you get, the more complicated and, and often incoherent it is because beyond that, um, for most of us, you have a very visceral attachment to certain uh, personality types. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump looked at, at Bill Clinton and he seemed like his kind of guy in mm-hmm. just some visceral way. And he looks at Barack Obama and it just pushes his buttons. He's not his type of guy. So So along with all of those those sort of political typologies that, you know, it's even more complex than that because we're assuming that people, individual people, people who are not sort of political professionals or journalistic professionals have a coherent ideology and have a coherent worldview. And in fact, I think often they don't. And often, even if they do, it can be in tension with all sorts of other things going on in their psyche um, that they may or may not be aware of. Right. Not surprisingly, David Brooks today has a column about Donald Trump about manners. Uh, I think we can end with that. But uh, thank you so much to Michael Lynn for joining us from the D.C. studios of NPR. Daniel Oppenheimer's right here in studio. Run on up to South Hadley, Massachusetts, if that's anywhere near your orbit. Uh, he'll be there tonight at the Odyssey Bookstore. Goodbye, Hillary 2008 highlighter. Goodbye, I like Ike button. Goodbye, Ulysses S. Grant beer koozie. And good riddance, John Adams retractable lanyard holder. Real Americans prefer their lanyards stationary.